Welcome to The Common Share, a podcast about cooperative businesses. I'm Asa Marshall with Cooperatives First, an organization that promotes cooperative business development in rural and Indigenous communities across Western Canada. For more information on us and what we do, you can visit cooperativesfirst.com. If you need resources for starting your own co-op, you can check out our co-op creator website at coopcreator.com. This great resource site has everything you need to get your co-op up and running. So thanks for joining us for season two of The Common Share. We're starting off this season with a very special interview, and I'm really excited to share it. Today's episode features a conversation with Nathan Schneider, who's a journalist and assistant professor at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Schneider released a book about cooperatives last year that's called Everything for Everyone, the Radical Tradition that is Shaping the Next Economy. He was recently in Saskatoon to give the 2018 McPherson Lecture at the Center for the Study of Cooperatives at the University of Saskatchewan. We were really pleased to host Schneider while he was in Saskatoon and to hear his take on the role of co-ops in the economy, especially given the growth of technology and the emergence of platform cooperatives. So just a quick note that we recorded this episode in our co-working office space rather than the recording studio as usual. So you'll hear a bit of background noise during this interview. With that, please enjoy our chat with Nathan Schneider. Thanks for joining us in our office today, Nathan. It's lovely here. The first question I wanted to ask you was, in your new book, Everything for Everyone, you talk about the cooperative commonwealth. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about what that is and sort of what part you see that playing in in the economy. The cooperative commonwealth was language that people used late 19th and early 20th century around a vision for a cooperative society, a world in which cooperative type economies were dominant rather than um, partial or even sometimes peripheral. And I think that's it's important language to remember because so many, especially I think a lot of young people have mainly experienced cooperatives as small. You know, they've experienced them as something that they're forming with a handful of people or that you know, a, a small kind of crunchy grocery store on the far end of town or something. And they haven't even considered maybe that, that this could be the basis of the economy as a whole. And I think it's important to remember that that has been an aspiration and it can be again. Why do you think that the public is kind of largely unaware of the impact that co-ops have had on the economy in, in general and that they continue to have? I think there are different stories in different places, but I know in the United States, there was a pretty systematic removal effort. In the 1920s, 30s, into the 40s, cooperative development was very mainstream. It was something that the government was producing propaganda videos about that would show in movie theaters. You know, that it was something that uh, whole communities were being organized around uh, under the New Deal and that was being taught and studied and discussed. Uh, And the the Cold War gradually eroded that in very specific ways. You know, it was cooperatives became a target for red baiting. And even the businesses that continued to operate uh, lost that ability to represent their cooperative identity, you know, to the point where when I was a kid, I grew up knowing my grandfather who, you know, died when I was pretty young. But I remember, you know, the belt that he wore that represented the company that he, you know, last company led. I never learned it was a cooperative until I was working on this book and, you know, started suspecting it and dug out his bylaws and realized that's that's exactly what it was. It was a hardware national distribution company. 
you know, he was a conservative guy. He was had a very little education, so he was always very anxious about being accepted in the business world. And so he had to present himself as good old American capitalism, you know, and and that's a very widespread story. Um, only more recently, I think, are some of these, you know, bigger, older cooperatives starting to realize that actually there's a craving for the kind of thing that they've been doing, that they, you know, this is a story they should be telling rather than hiding. And I hope we can recognize that more. I mean, you talk about how you can't get an MBA in co-op business, and there's not a lot of education out there about the co-op model. And you talked about maybe different ways of spreading that story. So how do you think, what are some good ways that we can educate the public about co-ops? I think the the kinds of stories that penetrate most are the ones that surprise us. And it can be hard to know what those are going to be. To me, the most important thing is to make it available where people need it most, including in communities that are being pushed to the margins of society and the labor market and where there's need that is not being met. And then also, you know, even among relatively privileged communities that are building ambitious startup businesses where there's an opportunity to really change how business is done and to um, open the door to a different kind of next generation of large organizations. And in in those spaces, many times people have, are so focused on trying to build the thing that they want to build, they you know get approached by investors, they, they're told to sign these forms and to incorporate this way and to get financed this way, and they just want to build their thing, and so they sign all the forms and they do what they're told, um, and nobody ever mentioned this idea that, hey, what if you built it in a way where in the long term, the thing you are so passionate about will be shared among the people who are also passionate about it rather than just the people who want to make a quick buck on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I and others have been trying to find what are the strategic places where we can make sure that there's some awareness about this stuff. And then the people who live this, uh, who live out, you know, this this model can tell their stories in the ways that are appropriate to them. You know, we have one platform co-op called Savvy, uh, where the founder uses hand puppets to tell the story of what they're doing. And I would never do that. (laughs) She's made me do it sometimes, (laughs) Uh, but I would never think of that. And that's to me, what's most exciting is, is putting the story in the hands of the people living it, letting them tell the, tell it in the ways that make sense to them. You talk, especially in your book, a lot about the history of cooperatives and and how they've evolved given the emergence of new technology. And I think a lot of people think that co-ops are kind of an old or archaic idea, and yet you're putting the idea out there that they're actually more of a modern disruptor in some way. So can you just talk a little bit about that? Why do you think that, that it's a good tool given the current state of technology and the economy? Cooperative and similar models have, I think, are really important in moments of transition, right, where the the social contracts of the society are changing. And and these kinds of models are essential for enabling us to make sure that the transition happens with participation of people who are most affected by it. And so I I think this is a crucial moment for this model to come out. Um, I I tend to look for things that you know, there's there's this phrase from a, a this poet and one of the founders of the Catholic Worker Movement, a French farmer named Peter Morin, and he always talked about things that are so old that they look like new, right? And that's that's what I think kind of makes the world 
go around, you know, is yes, things are changing, but old stuff recurs over and over. And I think there's something in the cooperative model that has that character. Before there were the Rochdale principles and the modern cooperative movement, there were guilds, there were monasteries, there were villages. These features are old. And yet in a moment where, you know, we're craving accountability of big companies, we're you know, craving community in the context of alienation and isolation of, of many people in society. We're craving work and economic relations that feel like they have a space for value. You know, suddenly this old idea starts to feel new again. Mm-hmm. What you talked about in your McPherson talk, obviously you focus on, on platform co-ops. And just for people who aren't familiar, can you talk a bit about what a, a platform co-op is and, and how you see them kind of being integrated into into the economy? Yeah, this term was coined by my um, collaborator, Trevor Schultz, who had been studying um, you know, labor online for years, organizing conferences and writing, and, and increasingly just saw more and more the kinds of exploitation that were becoming rampant in platforms like Uber, Amazon Mechanical Turk, platforms that were kind of undermining it, you know, as he would put it, what the labor movement had been fighting for for centuries, you know, undermining these basic protections and expectations that in the world of work had been expected. And then, you know, meanwhile, issues around data, private data, the the data of our lives becoming a kind of commodity. And so for him as a theorist, the need for this kind of cooperation seemed obvious, you know, and then at the same time, I had been working as a reporter and had been identifying examples of people doing just that. People were building online companies that shared ownership and governance to their core, you know, early examples like Stocksy United, a stock photo platform owned by its photographers or Locanomics, a, a gig platform like TaskRabbit owned by the workers who work on it. You know, and then some some earlier examples that were kind of entering this this digital economy full on, like Smart, a um, a freelancer now cooperative that uh, enables freelancers to do a lot of their bookkeeping and negotiating through a shared platform based out of Belgium. So this is a a model that kind of turns the digital economy on its head, rather than serving just the interests of. A kind of early investor class, it creates platforms that serve their users much more directly that are when hard decisions have to be made, you know, these are companies that can make those decisions on behalf of their users rather than putting their users under the, the investor's bus, mm-hmm. especially as the internet moves, has moved from being like a, an interesting toy to being the basic infrastructure of the economy and society and politics now. You know, we need that accountability built in, and we don't have it. We don't have it. And and these experiments point to how we could if we were to make a, you know, a conscious decision to build the infrastructure and policy necessary mm-hmm. to ensure that these kinds of businesses can, can thrive against very powerful competition. You, you talked about kind of the, the difficulties that platforms give to policymakers. I know in your book, you, you say that it's maybe easier for politicians to say yes to platform co-ops than it is to say something like Uber. Um, so you talk about why do you think that is? Why are co-ops easier to say yes to? Well, we're in a moment where things that have before been managed locally in some way or another, things like you know the taxi industry or hospitality you would expect local governments to have basic regulatory powers over them and to set standards. 
um, unions also to be heavily involved in those sectors. These are all now being replaced by monopolistic global platforms that really build their business model around breaking the law and getting away with it. And so the policymakers, I find, are aware of this and they are frustrated and kind of left helpless because they, you know, they recognize that these platforms add additional conveniences and and their citizens want them. But they also are losing their ability to manage their own urban or non-urban environments. They're, you know, losing the ability to control traffic congestion in ways that need to be managed if you're talking about public roads. They're losing the ability, you know, unions are losing the ability to manage and counteract the dangers of a highly exploited workforce. And so the opportunity to create platforms that have built-in accountability mechanisms that maybe are federated so local control is easier, you know, is more natural platforms that are willing to work around appropriate rules rather than, you know, break them as a business model is appealing, but those alternatives need to be viable enough that the policymakers aren't requiring their citizens to lose what has come to be an accepted convenience. And in places where these kinds of examples have occurred, like in Austin, when Uber and Lyft were driven out of the city by being forced to play by the rules, you know, you, you end up seeing it's very possible to create better versions of that same tool and actually better tools, different kinds of tools that operate have fundamentally different functionality and rules and structures on a different kind of business model. You know, we don't need global monopolies in order to like hail a car on our phone. You know, you don't, it doesn't have to be that way. It just is because there's so much money to be made you know, building a monopoly, as there, as has always been the case. Another thing you say in everything for everyone is that you you want to bridge the gap between the existing hiding commonwealth of co-ops and the glittery tech startups that get all the fanfare now. So, can you talk about what what does that look like? You know, there's there's something of there's a kind of deer in the headlights effect uh, of, of technology, right? Where people see something new and they imagine that that the whole thing is new. They imagine that all the rules are different, and it's just it's not it's not the case. I mean these these technologies are being built on, you know, on corporate legal structures that are decades, sometimes centuries old. Um, they're built on investor wealth that is intergenerational and goes back to older industries. It's important to recognize, like Silicon Valley wouldn't exist without the internet wouldn't exist without U.S. federal government military investment. And then the decision, conscious decision, by the architects of that investment to make what they had built into an open infrastructure, right? So it's like old-fashioned bureaucratic risk that has produced this private wealth. It's not rocket science, so to speak. You know, it's, it's old-fashioned questions of who owns and who governs. And, you know, the, the, those are the questions that the cooperative movement has excelled in, in answering. You know, I think for a while we've kind of given those glittery new platforms a pass, saying, cool, see what you can build, right? And these are great conveniences. Let's, you know, let's enjoy them. Let's check them out. Now these are infrastructure. The tech founders, by the way, like Zuckerberg and others, used to say that. They used to talk about their company. We want to be a utility. They would actually say that. Now their lawyers make sure they don't. But that's always been the aspiration. And when you when a company reaches that point, 
you know, becomes, plays that kind of role in shaping the economy, we need accountability greater than what is available now. So you talked about a few new platforms that have come out recently. Do you, do you have some favorite projects that you're seeing that are starting to crop up now? I don't want to pick favorites because I because it's it's hard to first of all it's hard to know what's really going to work because as with so many businesses too even amazing founders are going to you know their success or failure is often determined in part by forces beyond their control and then second I just feel such a great sense of appreciation for these founders and for the risk that they're taking because there isn't a strong infrastructure yet such as for instance what a investor-backed tech startup can have, or what you know a, a cooperative in the ag industry might have, you know, in, in an area where there's already an established infrastructure. So they're up against so much. You know, I mentioned Jen Horn, Jeff of Savvy, the the puppet wielder. <laughs> she was just featured in Fast Company and um, among entrepreneurs magazines, fifty top entrepreneurs alongside Elon Musk. Yet she has a great deal of trouble finding a single chunk of investment because the model she's committed to creating, you know, is incompatible with the kind of structures that are largely in place. So I just have so much admiration for for people like her. Uh, You know, the team at at Resonate, a streaming music platform that, you know, is creating a really innovative, interesting alternative to the Spotify model. I listen to it all the time. Really good music on there. And they just took investment from a cryptocurrency startup that has lost a lot of its value in recent months. And so it's really uncertain. Will this work out? The Rochdale group in 1844 that supposedly started the modern cooperative movement, it's a total, you know, it's a little bit of a myth, but we cling to it, call themselves a society of equitable pioneers. And I, I love that phrase, the equitable pioneers, you know, this kind of humble and decent core and then but also this courage and and risk of pioneering you know that phrase to me captures so perfectly what so many of these people are doing and and i think it's also so often a mistake where people assume that a cooperative is just a collective effort right it's just something that we come together and we do together as total equals in the whole process the history and the present experience really reminds us that leadership is essential in in developing these kinds of models. And I've just been so awed by the leaders, the new leaders who are coming up. And I hope that they, you know, that we can make it easier for people to step up and take that risk to be leaders and to be rewarded for their for their leadership. And you talked a bit about to the importance of mentorship in this space. Does that play a role in developing and supporting these new leaders? Absolutely, because they need to see what leadership can look like in a cooperative, right? And and in some ways, it's different from an, from other kinds of companies. In some ways, it's a lot of similar stuff. Um, but they need to see that they they need to see somebody who's done it in order to know it's possible for them, I think, for for many, many people. And this is something that is a critical ingredient of, for instance, the tech startup world in places like Silicon Valley or where I live, Boulder. You can walk down the street in downtown Boulder and trip over people who have sold multiple companies. You know, they're just everywhere. And so they're, when newcomers are getting things going, they, you know, they can find people around town who have gone through the ropes, you know, have built up startups and sold them, 
and can help teach them how the whole process works. And most of all, can just be there as this kind of human presence that human beacon of possibility, right? And for a lot of the young cooperators, they might just have each other. They might not even know each other that well. They certainly have, almost all of them have never met the CEO or leader of a large cooperative that is doing millions or billions in business. They don't know how to access those people. And in a lot of cases, unfortunately, or, you know, for better or worse, I should say, you know, those people are not well prepared to be those mentors because they were hired and largely as maintainers or as cultivators, as, as builders on an existing mature business. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very rare and very precious when we find people who have actually, you know, who built a cooperative from the ground up, scaled it to very large scale, and then are also willing to work with people who want to do that. But we find that those who, who, who have that experience, who have built, you know, cooperatives or, or, built them up in considerable ways they understand these young founders you know and they they recognize some of themselves in that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's interesting i mean given the that a lot of the young leaders are developing online platforms whereas people who even of your grandfather's generation cooperation the cooperative model was important but it looked very different so do you think the young tech startup co-ops have something to learn from you know the old guard Absolutely. You know, to a point, you know, it's always going to be to a point, just like, you know, somebody creating a tech startup, you know, in their underwear or whatever is is only going to be able to learn so much from somebody in a suit at IBM. And there are differences. But what we tend to find is there is a point at which, you know, those people creating something new are going to start finding themselves, you know, in a position like somebody in IBM. And they've often had to cross those bridges you know, in the, you know, the course of building that startup ecosystem and, and that culture. And we need to build the appropriate bridges there. So for instance, uh, one project I've been involved in is an accelerator called start.coop. And it's an equity accelerator for cooperatives. So uh, for new cooperatives to get going inside of it, and then also older cooperatives can invest in it and generate returns for their members through it. And, you know, the point of it is, we know that we need to create a distinct separate space for these new projects where they can create their own culture, but where they can also interface with those mentors. They can also reach them and meet them in a supportive, supported space, but without becoming just enfolded into those older models. Any kind of business needs to be kind of rejuvenated and renewed for, for a new generation, a new kind of market, a new kinds of technology. And so you need to create that space to do something different. In a way, you know, platform cooperativism, the term serves that purpose. It's been a term that has allowed people to come into the cooperative world feeling like, hey, this is our way of doing it. We have our own culture and set of values around this stuff. We're not just adopting what the previous generation of cooperators have done. It's a term that's hard to define. It's hard to (laughs) know where it begins and ends. But its value is in kind of marking a distinct territory. You know, maybe someday the term won't be necessary. It'll probably sound old before we know it. But it has done the kind of performative work of enabling people new to this world to feel at home in their own corner of it and to draw a bit of a distinction between what they're doing and, you know, what's come before. You know, it's a complex challenge, but I I do feel like more and more figuring out how to bridge the relationship between the tradition and 
the, the new generation is just so essential. Thank you so much for joining us for this first episode of season two of The Common Share. We really hope you enjoyed that conversation. To give us your thoughts on any topics we've discussed during this episode, you can find us on Facebook or on Twitter as at co-ops underscore first. So we'll be back in two weeks with another episode of The Common Share.